It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only, call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we want you to the Bible There we go. There we go. We welcome you into the virtual Bible study for Thursday, September, October twenty fifth, two thousand and twelve. We appreciate you for being a part of the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, will be joining me shortly, and uh, along with Chris Bates, we're concluding our gospel meeting tonight, and they're wrapping that up now, and they'll be in the room with us here momentarily. As we've been talking about things this week that make the Church of Christ different, and we'll continue that discussion tonight as we talk about uh, our worship and what makes uh, the Church of Christ different in regards to our worship. We believe this is a very important topic, a very important subject, and we look forward to your participation. The number to call is 877-381-4567. If you have any question about how we worship or how you think perhaps the Church of Christ or any church uh, that, that uh, would be pleasing to God uh, should worship, uh, let us know your thoughts over the phone, toll-free, 877-381-4567. Email questions at collegeview.com and use the chat window to the right of your video window if you're watching us on uh, the live feed tonight. As we talk about our worship and the importance of that, again, Chris Bates will be joining us along with my father here momentarily uh, to begin that discussion. But we understand uh, from the scriptures uh, that it is important how we worship. Uh, Jesus uh, told us such in John chapter twenty-four, uh, chapter 4, beginning verse 23, But the hour cometh and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And uh, that verse in and of itself does tell us that the subject tonight is important because God uh, does not just accept any worship that man would like to offer, but instead there are some rules and some guidelines. Oh, for how we should uh, how we should be worshiping God, uh, so that He'll be pleased and will accept that worship. And the gentlemen are filing in now, and uh, well, you made a pretty uh, grand entrance there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we made it. We're a little late, but yeah. we're glad to be joining you, Jacob, on the virtual Bible study. And we're glad that you're here as well. And uh, Chris Bates uh, joins us. Chris, welcome uh, to the program. No, thank you for having me. It's, it's to good to be back. It's good to be with you, Jacob and Greg and. I appreciate uh, also the work that College View does here and the elders for the opportunity to come and be a part of this broadcast tonight. I appreciate your sermon tonight. It was uh, very good. Uh, you, you, you ran out of time, though. You had a lot of material. Yeah, I had too much. I really needed to whittle that down a bit, but I, I wanted to get that in. I felt like it was important to talk about. All right. I think we'll be podcasting these uh, sermons uh, on our podcast feed for those who were not here tonight, so you might want to check out that feed and uh, get the audio from tonight's sermon uh, as we uh, talk uh, about things that make the Church of Christ different. It's been a great I, don't, I, I wasn't here when you were introducing the program, Jacob. I'm sure you explained that we've had a special theme this week, Right. what makes the Church of Christ different. Chris's responsibility tonight was to talk about the difference 
of our worship, that the public worship specifically that we engage in is different. And so to our update list earlier today, I put out the topic for consideration and asked for them to think about how in what we often refer to as the five acts of worship, how that the Lord's Church is different in every respect. In every one of those acts of public worship, we're different than most religious organizations. Now, I'm sure you'd find some similarity in different places and all, but we're trying to follow the New Testament in every part of that public worship. So that's what we kind of want to engage in. But before we do that, I had a question from Bob up in Indiana earlier today by email, and he asked the question, you know, about worship itself. And I thought we might comment about that. Chris, if you were going to define worship, how would you define it? I think that's a good question because it's a fundamental thing. Maybe it's one of those you just one of those words where you take it for granted and a concept you take for granted. Let's define what that is. Well, I think that uh, I would define it as an offering of praise unto God, that especially as it relates to what we can see being offered in the Scriptures um, along the line of praise. Uh, and it, it would incorporate all of these. Uh, you mentioned the five acts of worship, but there is an attitude. Uh, and I mentioned tonight in tonight's lesson the idea of reverence and godly fear. Uh, that goes along with this, but it is an approaching of God, as an, uh, bringing an offering, as it were, to Him of worship uh, by way of an uh, of acts and attitude, and an offering of praise is what I would see it as. Now the question the question comes up: Can I worship at some time other than the designated public assembly? There, yes, there, and there's no question about that. Yeah, you, you. As a matter of fact, there are any number of things that. By, by their very nature of worship, like, for instance, praying. If you prayed at home, uh, that would be an act of worship. Uh, that is different than the public assembly, but it is an act of yeah, worship. For instance, in James chapter 5, verse 13, James said, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. He wasn't talking about the assembly no, there specifically. He was talking about what I might do privately. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling down, I pray. I'm happy, I sing. You know, sure. Uh, and... But, but I would be worshiping God in the process of doing that. And that's why in our topic for discussion tonight, we specified the public worship. Mm-hmm. We were talking about the Church of Christ is different in the public worship she practices. Uh, we, we could do a lot of talk about things that we might do individually that offer praise and honor and glory to God. I think that's what worship is when we, when we show our reverence and respect for deity. Uh, but we, we were talking tonight about public worship specifically. And so that, that's kind of what we want to concentrate on. All right. We look forward to your thoughts at 877-381-4567. As you guys were entering the room, I was referencing John chapter 4, 20, verses 23 and 24. Chris, that just gives us the principle that God doesn't just accept anything that men want to call worship, that he's put some stipulations on it. We'll talk about some what, what those are, but uh, that proves the fact that we've got to be careful on how we worship God. That's right. And worship that is going to be offered to him has to be along the lines of what he articulates in John 4, 23 and 24. All right. I think some people have the idea that God's existence depends upon us worshiping him, that he's up there in heaven, he's just craving it, he needs it, that he can't really exist well without it. He's so dependent upon mortal human beings to extend worship to him. What a flawed idea of God that is. Uh, I, I think that's evident in the fact that God existed for an eternity before there were any mortal human beings to worship him. And after this world is destroyed, he'll continue to exist for eternity without mortal human beings offering him worship. He he doesn't need it. That worship really is designed for our benefit. Sure. 
Well, I, but I want to refine that a little bit, though, because it seems in the modern religious world today that the barometer of whether or not your worship is good or not is the effect it has on you. If you look at the denominational worship today, it's all about the bands and the, the show. I, well, and, I, well, and, and people and, say, I came away, I, man, I felt so good after I came out I just was tingling all over. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that, that, therefore, it was good worship. And that's not what the scriptures tell us, uh, how we should judge our worship. You know, I, rem- I remember uh, years ago I was working for someone, and this was shortly after I obeyed the gospel. And uh, she she was a member of a denomination, and she she got really offended by any kind of preaching that was what we would consider heart pricking preaching, preaching that was distinctive, preaching that was straightforward. And it just so happened to be that what she was talking about was preaching that is against sexual immorality. And she said to me, these were her words. She said, "When I go to church." I know all of the bad things I've already done. I don't want to feel bad about that anymore. I want to feel good about that. And that's that's the problem with making worship uh, something that is solely for my benefit when worship is something that is due God and, and whether or not it necessarily makes me feel better about myself. And, of course, true worship doesn't necessarily involve the idea of feeling better about yourself but lifting you up. Okay, so what you said is that worship is good for us, and it is. But it's only good for us, when truly, like when it's done like God yeah, said. Yeah, and, and I think we see, I, I really think we see the, the, the hollowness of this modern kind of worship that, that, that appeals to the carnal side of man. Right. I mean, the, the people are not, their lives are not changed. They're not, they're not moved to repentance. They're, they're, they're not growing spiritually by the process of the kind of entertainment ceremonies that men are producing and calling worship. With the modern, with the internet and the modern technology, you can you can witness these worship services without having to attend, and they look just like a cheap rock concert. Chris, I mean, <laughs> well, sure. I mean, you've got it's just, it's just it's it's really sad. Well, the whole layout, the whole format has changed. It's yeah. become extremely casual, and I mean, we're not so much talking about that, but that kind of an atmosphere lends to the entertainment side of of what they're trying to do. Yeah. This is more an appeal to the senses than it is it is appeal to the spiritual side of man. Jacob, I know you've mentioned a number of times we here in Middle Tennessee there's a there's a big mega church up in Nashville and and on the 4th of July they have indoor fireworks, you know, which I Jacob has mentioned a number of times. I think it's so I mean probably the ultimate example of this to thrill the thrill the people, you know. Make it for them. Make it make it something that you know just really excites them. Rather than, in other words, the, the worship is directed at the people rather than directed at God. Uh, we are worshiping ourselves in that sense, Chris. And not only that, you mentioned the you mentioned the idea of the indoor fireworks. I can remember a few years ago, uh, a a congregation, a mega church as it were, that decided that it would have services. Uh, during the halftime of the Super Bowl. They had rented a big, big television, a big screen TV, and so they started watching the Super Bowl, but when the halftime show came on, they had their worship. Now, we know that the halftime show of the Super Bowl has gotten longer and longer and longer, but I'm satisfied that their worship didn't span the uh, halftime period of the Super Bowl. It was just, it is this catering to all that is really fleshly. And I don't want to be misunderstood and and be heard to say or understood to be saying that there's something wrong with watching the Super Bowl. But when, when we begin to plan our worship to God, something that is so important around something that is of no significance at all, Super Bowl or indoor fireworks, then there's a spiritual heart problem somewhere. All right. So worship is, is 
is not, in other words, we need it, but we need to do it the way God says. And that's what we want to emphasize. Arthur, did you have the, we got Arthur Haynes in the audience tonight. Do you have any thoughts to add along those lines, Arthur, before we go to our first break? Uh, it's ready. You're, you're live there. there you're live there? Yeah. Okay. Now, just also thinking in terms of holidays, you know, some holiday like the 4th of July or something like that around Christmas time, if Oh, the service will be put off. We'll have it early. We won't have it. Oh, then, oh, that. Christmas is yeah. uh, uh, Christmas on Sunday. We're going to have to yeah. cancel our services because Christmas on Sunday. Well, that shows that man is more important than God. And and you know, like you were talking about, I just kept thinking about better felt than told. Yes, that's the attitude of so many. All right, very good. All right. Uh, well, uh, we better go ahead and get a break, and then we'll get into the real meat of the discussion. And you uh, may tell our listeners about the questions you posed. Earlier yeah, today. again, earlier today, what we suggested is we're just <clears throat> going to walk through the five acts of public worship and, and show what the Bible teaches we ought to be doing and then contrast that with some of the practices that we see commonly in the denominational world. All right. We'll do that on the other side of the break. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues with your comments right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. Do you remember a time when no one had ever heard of a church with a family life center or a gymnasium? Can you think back to a time when good brethren would have been outraged to see a church budget overloaded with kitchen equipment and supplies, athletic equipment, and buses to carry kids to amusement parks? Are you concerned because the church you're attending has gotten all wrapped up in things that you know should not even be a part of the work of the church? Would you like to find a congregation that is committed to simply doing Bible things in Bible ways? If so, please visit us soon. Come and see for yourself. Visit us at the College View Church of Christ this Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Don't wait until everything is just right. It'll never be perfect. There will always be challenges, obstacles, and less than perfect conditions. So what? Get started now. You are the embodiment of the information you choose to accept and act upon. To change your circumstances, you need to change your thinking and subsequent actions. Life is like riding a bicycle. To keep your balance, you must keep moving. You can't cross the sea merely by standing and staring at the water. The secret of getting ahead is getting started. The secret of getting started is breaking your complex, overwhelming task into small, manageable ones, and then starting on the first one. The way to get started is to quit talking and begin doing. Outward expressions reveal inner thoughts and feelings. Bad habits are like a comfortable bed, easy to get into but hard to get out of. Some people criticize the scriptures like they do a restaurant. If they have no appetite, they think the food is no good. The pleasures of sin are seasonal, but the wages of sin are eternal. Man, I wish I'd said that. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Colossians 3:17. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the Virtual Bible Stage tonight as we talk about our worship and what uh, makes the Church of Christ different in the way that it worships compared with those in the denominational world. And, and we're hearing in stereo tonight. I've got Chris Smith in my, or, or Chris Bates in my in my headphones, and Chris Bates here to the right of me. That's right. Chris the, is the, the voice one. of the virtual Bible <laughs> yeah, study. Chris, yeah. Chris, years ago, we've been doing the virtual Bible study, Chris, now for over seven years. And when we first started, Chris was kind enough, he was doing some radio work at the time, was kind enough to put us together our intros and our, what do you call them? Out, outros and outros. bumpers and <laughs> sweepers. Yeah, there we go. So he did all that for us. We still use them. We appreciate it. Uh, yep, and we're glad that you're with us, Chris. As we talk about our worship, in the chat room, Dave says, uh, God doesn't need worship. We need it. We would agree with that. And uh, Dave says, three things that define worship on our part are humility, submission, and obedience. Also, joyful thanksgiving. All right. I think that's true. 
All right, your comments in the chat room, we'll welcome them there and also on the phone at 877-381-4567. Let's talk about an act of worship. Let's talk about prayer. What would you say if someone challenged you? You know, here you are, Chris. You told us tonight we need to do all everything we do in word or deed in the name of or by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, Colossians 3.17. So I'm going to challenge you. Where does it say that when Christians come together, we're supposed to be praying? In fact, someone might even throw up uh, to us what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. You know, he, he was condemning the public prayers of the hypocrites. And, and he said, when you pray, Matthew 6 or 6, enter to thy closet. When thou hast shut the door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And the Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So what if someone were to say, I'm challenging the very concept of public prayers when we come together in assembly. All right, Chris, uh, why don't you defend that act? Well, I would I would gladly challenge the challenge. I, you know, I, uh, the, the the thing the thing about that is that you know you're talking from Matthew chapter six about a situation with one who is is not praying for the benefit of honoring God, but he is standing on the street corner so that he can be heard for his many words and. Uh, going on and on and drawing attention to him. This is not the kind of, of praying that the church is to do when it assembles. Now, the question may be, well, where do, where do we find the church coming together for prayer? Well, I can, I can think of a couple of cases. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, when Paul writes to the young preacher, he tells him that I want the men in every place to pray. Now, Timothy is there at Ephesus, and he's preaching there. And so wherever it is that the church is going to assemble, he wanted that the men should pray in these places. Not only that, I recall in Acts chapter 12, when uh, when James, the brother of, of John, was put to death with the sword, and then Herod saw that it pleased the people that he did that, so he seized Peter to put him in prison. But what do we learn there? That there was fervent prayer made, on his behalf by the church They to were God. assembled together. They, they had come together, yes. Uh, I can think of a couple other examples. Acts 2, yes. verse 42, yes. the first Christians, it says, they, they that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day were added to them about 3,000 souls, verse 41, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. I think this is what they were doing collectively. Yeah, because this is the church at Jerusalem. Yeah. This is the and, first the first instance of the local church. Yeah, and then in Acts 20, when Paul had met with the Ephesian elders, right. as they were about to break up, he was leaving. Uh, it says in verse 36 of Acts 20, when they had thus said, when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And so there's a prayer made in unison with other Christians mm-hmm. assembled together. Okay. So I think we can definitely defend the practice of what we what we commonly call. Well, well, again, one other point. How about First Corinthians chapter eleven? I mean, aside from we can chase a rabbit here on the on the head covering being mentioned there, but what was going on? Right. You have the church of God at Corinth, and you had various spiritual gifts or miraculous gifts in play there, and praying and prophesying was something that was being done by the church at Corinth. All right, I think we've proven the point. Uh, we should be praying as we come together. To worship God uh, corporately or collectively. Dave in the uh, chat room mentions proof. Acts 2.42 as well. Yes. Um, all right. Now, we're saying that, that the Lord's church is different in this matter of praying. How are we doing? What, what, what are the denominations maybe doing that would be different from us? Chris in Atlanta has written, he's our most faithful answerer to our questions. He, <laughs> said, he says, we ought to pray to the Father through the Son. Luke 11, 2, John 14, 13. The experience I had as a Methodist 
uh, when baptized in my youth was along those lines. I know that the Catholics pray to saints because of misinterpretation of Revelation 8, 3, and 4, among many other verses. So Christmas is one thing that would be different. The Catholics, for instance, do pray to others besides the Father. I believe we're to pray to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we've had, we've even talked about this on the virtual Bible study before, uh, about praying to Jesus. I, I don't think praying to Jesus uh, is is authorized. I think we're to pray to the Father through the Son. Um, I, I don't know how you get around uh, what Jesus said in Matthew 6 when he was teaching about prayer. He said, after this manner, therefore pray. In other words, pray like this is what he said. Our Father which art in heaven. We address our prayers to the Father. We don't pray to Mary. We don't pray to those Christians maybe who who held kind of an exalted status and they've died and they've been conferred special position uh, like the Catholic Church does. We pray to the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. Well, without disagreeing with that, let me present uh, uh, just something to consider on the idea of praying to Jesus. Even if that is a practice that some involve themselves in, it's certainly not something that I've ever done. But uh, at least not as a Christian. Um, but uh, that still would not, in my mind, come in the same in the same exact situation as, say, praying to Mary. Uh, only and, and don't misunderstand. I'm not I'm not undercutting the point that Greg just made at all. What I'm suggesting is that Jesus, as God, is is not necessarily the same as Mary because Mary is not that. Now, what Greg has mentioned. By way of authority, who do we have authority to pray to? Right. We're talking about the Father. Um, but if someone if someone was making a quibble, uh, Jesus doesn't belong in the same discussion, essentially, as with Mary as, and the saints. Or if you saints. Understand, if you understand I, understand, what I understand what you're saying. Okay. You know, another thing that we might talk about is, is different in, in some religious groups is sort of mechanical prayers or, or recited, memorized prayers, you know. Uh, I, I know, for instance, the Catholic Church would say, well, uh, as penance for this particular sin, I want you to pray 50 Hail Marys. And so they've got a they've got a memorized prayer. It's to Mary, but it's a memorized, and, and you just go over it by rote, and you mm-hmm. actually maybe count beads to keep track of how many you've said. The, you've heard of the rosary beads and so forth. That's all foreign to the Scripture. And so, you know, in something as simple as prayer, we find that men have twisted that and changed it from the simple New Testament pattern. I was discussing, or the individuals wanted to say that, you know, they just must be, and it must be all right for me to pray to Jesus. I'm just thinking there's some scripture there will justify that. And I just made the statement, I said, well, I do know that I can pray to God the Father because of the model prayer that Jesus said. Our Father which art in heaven is the way he addressed it. And when I, I know that I can do that, I have no problem with it. That's exactly. facts. Exactly. Again, about the idea of praying to Jesus, just for the sake of chasing a quick rabbit here, most of the time when we have this discussion, typically uh, we're talking about it among us and, you know, is there authority for it? But I, I have I have only heard someone do it once in all the time I've been a Christian in an assembly, and it was it was different and it was noticeable. But it's the only time I've ever heard it. So it's not like it's this wide practice. I don't know why uh, folks keep bringing it up from their perspective when they think it's all right. Why, why do you talk about this? We we never see it done. But w- what I do want to pinpoint is, and I think we all agree to this, most of the time when we see people praying to Jesus. 
It is not uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is some religiously misguided fellow who is praying to Jesus to ask him into his heart mm. as some kind of sinner's prayer. Yeah, like a, like, and we're going to be talking, by the way, talking about that in our in our gospel meeting tomorrow night. We're going to talk about the plan of salvation. I'm confident that Eric Reynolds, who will be preaching tomorrow night, will probably mention the flawed mm. idea of a sinner's prayer. Right. Uh, for salvation. For salvation. Uh, you know, again, I, to me, I, I maybe oversimplify this question, but it seems so direct to me. Luke 11, verse 1, it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place. When he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. How do you get around that? Well, Jesus said, when you pray, say this. At the, at the very least, at the very least, we know for sure that we have authority to pray to the Father. And if we have it to pray to the Son, it is not so clear. And so we shouldn't we we shouldn't press a point that oh yes we can pray to the Son we can pray to Jesus Christ when we have such an abundance of Scripture that teaches us that we can pray to the Father and about that no one is offended. Well, you know what I mean. No one's conscience is offended when someone offers a prayer to the Father. Well, that is a point that we need to make, and that is that uh, we need to be doing all things by uh, God's authority in Jesus' name. Because our worship, again, is about what God wants, not what we want. That's right. And I, and I want God to be pleased with my worship. And the only way I know that he's going to be pleased is if I do it the way that he said. If I go in and just do things that make sense to me, well, there's no guarantee that God will be pleased with that. In fact, right. I'm quite certain he won't be. And so we want to make sure that we're doing all things. At the very least, you'd be taking a chance yeah, to yeah. do it. Yeah, a chance. Um, why, why, and why do that when we can know something for certain? All right. We, we're almost to our halftime break, but let's let's bring up the second. Act. Oh, go ahead, Arthur. You have another point? Yeah, I do. Uh, I can remember uh, many years ago, my aunt had told me that they'd worship somewhere, and, and a young individual had addressed God or the Father as Daddy. Oof. You know, yes. And so disrespectful. And the mannerism of how he had uh, prayed was just, you know, everyday language, just, just so insincere, so irreverent. I mean, it's just pitiful, but I've never heard of that other than that one time. Well, isn't that exactly the opposite of what we're supposed to be doing in worship is exalting God rather than bringing him down right. to our level. Yeah, and that, that is an attempt to humanize him rather than to offer reverence to him. All right, let's take a break, and when we get back, we got we're to talk about singing. And that's uh, going to as take an a act while. of worship and how it's different. We'll have, we could talk all <laughs> night about that, so we'll have to go quickly. All right, we'll take a break and get your thoughts on the other side. Chris, can you... Give us one of those outros in person since you're here. <laughs> yeah, it's the virtual Bible study with Jacob Gwynn and Greg Gwynn, and we'll be right back. All right. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. Attendance at worship services and Bible studies has always been a problem. Faithful brethren have constantly agonized over those who don't attend. It's been that way in every generation, including among the very first Christian. The Hebrew writer was compelled to pen these famous words in Hebrews 10, beginning verse 24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Notice the reasons why you should attend every scheduled service. First, it's a command. The New American Standard Version says, not forsaking our own assembling together. This ought to be reason enough, but the Lord has provided plenty of additional motivation. Notice, secondly, that you are the one who needs this. If you've been thinking that worship is something that God needs, forget it. Worship is for us, not Him. The passage says that the assembly allows opportunity to be exhorting or encouraging one another. 
You need this, and you miss out on it when you're not here. Finally, others need you. As a member of the Lord's body, you are in a give-and-take situation. Too many apparently feel that it's all take, and they never give. But we are commanded to, quote, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's the New American Standard Version. The worship services provide an excellent opportunity for doing that very thing. You can't encourage your brothers and sisters when you're not here. And brethren are seriously discouraged by low attendance. Those who neglect the assemblies dishonor God, miss out on a great spiritual blessing, and violate the rule of brotherly love and concern. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I am Nestor Sanchez from Arica, Chile, in South America. And I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. And this moment, I invite you to participate in this program, too. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. We're back on the virtual Bible study tonight. We remind you this program is brought to you by the College Street Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us by visiting our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. We're talking about our worship and the things that make it different um, than the worship we see in the denominational world today. And we're ready to talk about singing. And like I said, we could talk about that all night. We've talked about it many times on the virtual Bible study. Just by point of difference, the worship of the of the Church of Christ is is different than almost every other religious group. You can't say all because some some also practice right. as we do, a cappella singing, singing without instrumental musical accompaniment. Most people see that as to be very odd, very different. And, in fact, that typically is one of the first questions that comes up when someone finds out, oh, you're a member of the Church of Christ. I've heard that you don't use instrumental music. Why not? They, they think it is so odd uh, that we don't. It's sort of like we have broken with the the the, the Bible. That the, <laughs> the, the Bible teaches it, and here we've come along and decided to do something different than the Bible teaches because they believe it is so common. That everybody does it. Why? Why wouldn't you do it? Uh, we need to point out to him, Chris, that that was not the case. The first Christians didn't sing with instrumental accompaniment. That's right, they didn't. And as a matter of fact, even uh, even up until five or six hundred years ago, it's hard to find it in history in religious settings. And uh, the, if I may mention the Presbyterian Church, uh, which is certainly on board with the instrumental music uh, idea, but they didn't come along with it until. They were latecomers to it. They were about 1900, early 1900s before they finally signed on to it. But for years, they understood it to be wrong. And I think a telling point, especially the, the, the teaching of Scripture and the examples that we have to follow, but I think another telling point to consider is the voices of history. When you look at John Wesley and you look at John Calvin and you look at um, – all uh, who was the big Baptist preacher that was well, uh, Charles Spurgeon? Spurgeon. Charles yep. Spurgeon. You know, he he's on record as being against uh, these things, and and the reason they were opposed to it is because they understood then what their spiritual descendants don't understand now. They simply were not authorized. You know, I've got a quote. And again, we've mentioned a lot of this in the past, but I've got a quote from a book called "The History of the Baptist Church in the Lower Mississippi Valley." All right, there weren't any Baptist churches in the lower Mississippi Valley until sometime within the last 200 years, Mm -hmm. more like probably the last 150 years. Right. And that book uh, documents that there was a big fight in Baptist churches about bringing in the organ. So, you know, most Baptists would say, well, sure, we use instrumental music. We always have. You know, no, even in their own denomination, they haven't always done it. They, and it's some, a new thing. And, and there's, a, there's a splinter of them that still do not. The primitive Baptists do not use instrumental music. And they have websites that are devoted to showing why they don't use instrumental music. They understand 
uh, as, as hard it is, as it is to believe that they cannot understand the problems with Calvinism, but they can understand and do understand that there is simply no authority for going beyond that which is written concerning worship. And so you have historical figures who were historically against it, and also historians unanimously almost agree. Oh, I, I've, never, I've never read after a church historian who was talking about the practice of the first century church. They unanimously agree that they did not use instrumental music. No one argues that point. Right. Now, this uh, doesn't, this, neither one of those so facts establishes uh, fact. Not at all. But the scriptures are very clear to support that uh, premise that we've made. But it is a, a curious piece of circumstantial evidence yes, anyway. But you're right, Jacob. The scriptures just simply are so clear uh, on what it is that we're to do by way of New Testament worship. Now, folks will bring up the uh, occasion uh, of the musical instruments under the Jewish dispensation. And we agree and we accept that that is what they did. They did that by command. They had authority to do that, just as they had authority to offer burn offerings and uh, and all kinds of animal sacrifices. So they had the authority to do those kind of things, and they burned incense and all this. What sort of about thing. angels in heaven? Angels in heaven play harps. Well, that's that's something relative to heaven, and not something right, relative right. to the church and earth. Uh, we're not and angels, by, and, and, and we're th- not in heaven. And another so thing that about, doesn't have anything to do with us. Another thing about that, and you can't play a harp very good either. No, I can't. Another, <laughs> another thing about that. Are we talking about literal, physical harps in heaven? If I understand Paul right, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Can can then wood and, and other things inherit the kingdom of God? Can it be there? I think there's imagery in the Revelation sure, it's, letters it's that, we're, that we're to understand a greater point there. And, and not so much uh, the, the angels playing harps, but the victory that God is giving his church through that persecution. All right, quickly, because, again, we could talk on and on about instrument music. I want to talk about one other thing that may distinguish us in regards to singing in public worship, what, what I sometimes identify as special music, choirs, solos, mm-hmm. quartets. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, we got these four guys, and they and when they put their voices together, it is awesome. They, they harmonize. I mean, it's wonderful. We had them at church last Sunday. They got up there and they gave a musical performance, and man, it was it was moving. Yeah. What's wrong with that? I'm, I'm speaking facetiously, obviously. What's wrong with that? Are there? Not admonishing one another when you got them up there doing all of it. All right. I think that's the key. In Colossians 3:16, it says, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another." in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. I see this singing that we do in the public worship as a mutual thing. We teach and admonish one another. Now, if we had that group of four, that great quartet up there singing, they might be telling us something. In other words, they might be teaching us something by virtue of the song they're singing. But we certainly wouldn't be teaching them anything. It's it's not reciprocated on our end. Right. So I would say, to me, that's what's wrong with so-called special music, choirs, quartets, solos, and so forth. So you're saying that our our singing, based upon what the scriptures say, is our singing should be a cappella and it should be congregation. Exactly. Right. I believe that's right. I just know your thoughts, 877-381-4567. Chris in Atlanta said, <laughs> we see by example and in scripture that we are to sing a cappella and everyone participate. The denominational world use instruments and choirs. Their reasoning is that the Bible does not say not to do it, and it it helps them to get more out of the worship. They miss the fact that we are here to give worship to God and not be entertained. Right. You know, we might go ahead, Arthur. I like it. Oh, it's just so. Uh, I do too. And I like, <laughs> and I do. But 
There's not authority for it. What about the idea, real quickly, I don't want to take too long on this, but what about the idea of be entertained? In other words, uh, is worship to be entertaining for us? Can you defend the the, the principle? Uh, Some of us were talking about this recently. Some were suggesting, I'm entertained by worship. I'm supposed to be entertained by worship. Do you think that's a biblical concept, Chris? I don't see it as a biblical concept. When when folks gathered for worship, it was for edification, the building up of the body of Christ. Entertainment is something you get at the Shady Brook Cinema. Uh, Entertainment is something you get on television, and sometimes it's not the best entertainment. But entertainment appeals to the senses. It does not appeal to the spirit of a man. And when we come together... Uh, if we if we have the idea when we come together as a collection in worship and say, well, this is for entertainment. I'm coming together because I really like it here. It's entertaining. Then what we're essentially doing is we are cheapening the radiance of the worship that God expects and deserves. All right. So I, I think you're right. I, I no no. There's, there's to be emotion with our worship. We we're to be joyful. Yeah. But that that's does not those terms are not synonymous. Rejoicing or joyful is not the same as being entertained. Greg, too, I know I've uh, understood some, you know, that would go to some big singing. Oh, just had a large number of people. And, you know, what I always hear, oh, how good it sounded. Oh, it was just so beautiful. They didn't say anything about all those good words I was able to use to praise God. And I just, I mean, I, in recent years, I just will not listen to some real beautiful uh but uh, How Great Thou Art, or some of those songs uh, with mechanical instrument, and even without them, if I'm not participating in them, I can't use it as recreation or just uh, something like that. I cannot. Mike, grab this mic. I Mike. think that's one of the dangers, uh, Arthur, of, uh, of these uh, of these types of things, is that they could quickly and easily become entertaining rather than worshiping. Yeah. Mike's in the Mike. audience. Mike, give us a thought. Uh, I just want to mention. Uh, I'm always uh, always remember Romans 1:16 that the the power is the gospel. And to me, it would seem that nothing would be more offensive to God than saying, you know, that your gospel is not good enough. We have to bring in the Super Bowl. We have to bring in hot dogs right. and ice cream or or a and, singing group or a singing group, etc. And the the and, important thing about what Mike is saying is someone doesn't even have to say those words specifically to be doing that. You know, I mean, the, to say. That uh, they don't have to literally say, well, uh, your gospel isn't powerful enough. Their example is demonstrating that. It's, it's, it's inferred by, by what they're that's doing. That's right. Yeah. All right, Jeff in the chat room, and Jeff is behind the controls tonight, but Jeff doesn't have a microphone, so he's mute tonight. But uh, he says that we should uh, we should wor- enjoy our worship. Yeah, but there's, I, I, I think there's a difference between enjoying what we're doing, rejoicing in what we're doing, and being being entertained. I don't think those are synonymous concepts. I mean, we should certainly be joyful. It should be it, it be something. David said, Psalm 122, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. We should be glad about it uh, and so forth. But if it, there's a dangerous line we, we, we approach when we say it needs to entertain us. And that that d- defines what sets us apart from the denominations. They have gone whole hog toward making sure everyone is entertained by what's done. That's not the objective. The objective is not to entertain us. The objective is to worship God. Thinking in terms, again, of entertainment and how it appeals to the senses, here we have to be able to see the difference in being being glad to come to worship 
and being glad or excited to go to a concert. Suppose you've got some teenage girl all giddy to go to the Taylor Swift concert. Uh, there's a different emotion involved because this appeals to simply the senses, and there is absolutely no spiritual benefit to going to a music concert. There is great spiritual benefit uh, in attending worship with those of like precious faith who are worshiping according to the first century pattern, and that is enjoyable in itself, and it's it's to be different and distinguished from the idea of being entertained. Like I can't wait till this show comes on, you know, on TV tonight. I guess the entertainment idea is what it does for me versus what I, what I what I'm doing for God. Right. Uh, you know that that, that when I when I when I choose entertainment, it's what I'm going to get out of it. It's that's what that's the primary factor if, here. And if you really want to drive it home, I mean, we we just think back to all that the Lord did for us. Here's Jesus Christ who has come to earth, who's died for the sins of mankind. And we say that all the time, and people understand what he did. But when we say it like that and we kind of pass over it, we pass over the gory details of the illegal trial that he had to stand before Annas, of the uh, of the beatings and the, and the suffering that he endured, of the mockery, of the twisting of the crown of thorns together to put on his head, and hail king of the Jews, and if you're the son of God, come off of the cross, and why don't you do that? Why don't you call down heaven now to save you and all these legions of angels we've heard about? And all of that Jesus takes to the cross with him, the grief of the entire world because of transgression, mine, yours, and those of his day and those before him, so that I can be entertained or so that I can be saved. And that's, that's what really should drive it home. I mean, is this what the Lord did? He die so that we could build basketball gymnasiums? or so yeah, that You know, could... serving God can bring joy to us. Serving other people Absolutely. sometimes brings joy to us. Right. But, the, but the, the difference, and I think you've got the point there, Jacob, the difference is what's the object? Is the object me or is it God? Uh, Mike has popped up uh, in the chat room. Mike is in Orleans, Indiana. He says worship should be something we ask, how can we please God first? not please ourselves. Yes, and Dave says we should rejoice in God and our relationship with him. That is the joy of worship. The object of our joy is God. And collective worship, he says, enhances our joy. Okay. All right. Good points. All right. Well, we've run up to the another break, Jay. We've got three more things to talk about. We're going to have to go rapid fire when we get back. <laughs> we do. We have to go fast, and we'll take your thoughts on the other side. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. Hi, I'm Jack Coleman, a member of the College View Church of Christ, with a suggestion for you and your family. Why not turn off the TV on Thursday nights and gather the family around the computer for an hour of in-depth Bible study? The virtual Bible study always involves subjects of importance and interest to serious Bible students. So, why not join this Internet Bible study group every Thursday night? We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. Recently released survey results show that more Americans are claiming that they have accepted Jesus as their Savior and expect to go to heaven, but interestingly, more say they haven't been to church in the last six months except for special occasions. In 1991, 24% were unchurched. Today, the percentage is 37%. That information is via USA Today. In the Word of God, Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus said, Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Broadcasting around the world with truth that are out of this world. The virtual Bible study. And we're back, on the, away, pro- and we're back on the program tonight as we talk with Chris Bates about our worship and how it differs from those in the denominational world. We've got to go quick. Let's, make, let's go to the next point. We preach in our assemblies. When we come together to worship, there's preaching and teaching. How do... How do you see what we do as being different from what the world? 
Well, you mean what the denominations are doing? Yeah. Well, the difference in the Church of Christ and the denominations is the Church of Christ preaches the gospel, preaches the Word of God, does not have a creed other than the Word of God, does not have something written by men that says, this is what we believe here. If someone said, well, Chris, I want you to give me a concise sentence in 30 seconds of what the Church of Christ believes. The Church of Christ believes the Bible, and that's what I would say. And what we preach is the gospel, unadulterated, sound doctrine. I think that that is one of the things that people, if, if, you've, never attended this, the worship, if you've never attended the worship services of the Church of Christ, I think this would stand out, that we appeal to the Bible constantly. Yes. I, I don't know, Chris, you, I, you, you, you had to have had three or four dozen scriptures in your sermon tonight. Now, I think a visible contrast with the, the many religious groups would be Maybe no reference to the scripture. Maybe one read one passage at the start, close the Bibles, and then reference other. Maybe maybe reference many writings. You know, last week we interviewed a Unitarian Universalist preacher on our on our virtual Bible study. She we asked her, "What's your worship service like?" And she said, "Well, we'll, there'll be a reading. It might be from the Bible, but (laughs) it, it could be from another. She called it sacred book. Right? Mentioned the Koran or." You know, some of the writings of Confucius. Some poetry or something. Poetry, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that, that this would clearly denote the difference in our preaching. Our preaching is Bible-based. You know, uh, book, we, we often say book, chapter, and verse. Uh, I, I, when, I, when I prepare a sermon, I know you do the same, Jacob and Chris. I want to make sure that there's plenty of scriptures there. In fact, if I go back and look at it and I see a point that I have not developed with scripture, I'll go back and put some more in. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to get up there and just say what I think. I've got to prove that this is what God wants us to be doing. That, and the only way to prove that is by constant and abundant reference to the Scriptures. All right. I think, and I think folks are working a lot harder when they put lessons together without Scripture. If you put more Scripture in your lesson that, that you build the lesson around these Scriptures, you're not working quite as hard. And I mean that in a kind of a tongue-in-cheek way because there are a lot of folks that are really gifted speakers that love to hear themselves talk for 30 minutes with no Scripture. Uh, and that's that's a lot harder work than I'm intending to do. <laughs> right. It's a harder I sell. I mean, you, you got the scripture to back you up, then then that that's sells right. it. Yeah. And 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 one more point yeah. on the Second Timothy two fifteen, just specifically there when Paul tells the young preacher to study for what purpose, so that he might handle accurately or rightly divide the word of truth. The very statement handle accurately implies that it can be inaccurately handled. And First Peter four eleven, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Which is, which is why when you come to an assembly of the Church of Christ, you'll hear the preacher or any number of those who actually speak in the assembly say that if I say something tonight that is out of harmony with the revealed will of God, then I would like for you to bring that to my attention. And you hear that said a lot because we simply want to preach book, chapter, and verse. Paul told Timothy, a preacher, preach the word, be in season, out of season. He didn't say... Give them your thoughts. Yeah. Tell them your philosophy of life. He said, preach the word. Matter of fact, he, he warned that we not be taken by empty philosophies and things of that nature, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. Now, let's compare this with the denominational world. Like and uh, Let's compare this with the denominational world and uh, and the idea that worship's got to do something for me, the effect it has on me, what the light show or the smoke or whatever, you know, the band, and the effect it has on me. What we're looking for is God's word, knowing it, understanding it, 
and knowing that we're lining up with it. That's the effect we want to have at the end of our worship is knowing that we did what God told us to do and that we are following his instruction. And, and the way worship. we know that is because we referenced the word. Absolutely. Right. All right, Arthur, your thoughts. And two, uh, Greg, I know you're talking hmm. about, you know, necessarily giving scripture or a lot of scripture, but, you know, you can just think in terms of uh, uh, the uh, terms we use in coming up with what authority is, command, example, necessary inference, statement, truth. And then when, you know, there's so many times you have to have a for it's a forced conclusion of the thing that you're reaching. And you don't necessarily have to have scripture for it. It's just your knowledge of the scripture. It's a forced conclusion that you reach in what you're saying. Like okay. Noah's tools yeah. for the building of the ark. He had to have some tools. We don't know what they were, but we can conclude definitely that he used some tools. He had to have. Ike in Indiana says our Lutheran pastor, he grew up in the Lutheran church, often told some great stories about the years he lived in Malaysia, and many of them had good moral lessons. When I became a Christian, I noticed that preachers in the church proved what they said or did by the scriptures. Of course, we are slowly drifting away from that more and more every day. Chris, do you see that as a problem, even in Churches of Christ? I do see it as a problem, and I, and I don't know what it is that is going on. I, I think that there is there is this attempt to answer, without me chasing a rabbit here, there's an attempt to answer an argument that's not being made, especially as it relates to the idea of grace. There's this assumption that gospel preachers are just not preaching enough about grace anymore. And and I deny that. I've written a series recently on grace that answers a lot of the things that are being said by some of our brethren with reference to grace and that are just, I think, highly skeptical or highly, uh, highly uh, not skeptical, but highly suspicious in, in some of the things that they're suggesting and they're answering arguments that are not being made. So they, they end up moving themselves, not just them but others, into this, I think we need to back off of this book chapter and verse preaching. It sounds like we're pit bulls. It sounds like we're on the attack and all of this kind of thing. Paul told us to speak the truth in love. And the bottom line is when the truth is being preached and someone is on the opposite side of the fence than the truth there's a million ways I can skin an old cat and any way I do it the old cat ain't going to like it. And that's, yeah. that's what it comes down to. Now, we don't need to be belligerent. We don't need to be demeaning in, in any way in our preaching of the gospel. But the bottom line is I can say it with a smile, and it still comes across uh, to the person that's offended by the truth as arrogant. And so there's, this, uh, there's this, this movement to get away from Scripture-filled lessons, and that movement is going to be the demise of the, of the spiritual growth of so many young Amen. people. Mike, Mike in the chat room says, book, chapter, and verse authority differentiates the true church from the preachers of the false gospels, Galatians 1, 6, and 7. I agree with that. Chris in Atlanta said, many in the denominational world use preaching as a comedy hour or as an hour of feel-good personal development instead of teaching God's word. Some even go so far as to ignore plain teaching in the scripture and allow women to preach. There, We hadn't talked about that. There's a place where we would be different. No Indeed, women preachers. Yeah. All right. Arthur, did you have a thought? Okay. All right. Uh, we got to move on. Quickly, let's talk about the Lord's Supper. How are we different in regards to the Lord's Supper? Uh, I'll start out with Chris's comment. He said, we see in the scriptures that it was taken every first day of the week and consisted of unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. When I was a Baptist for several years, we only took it once, and that was on Sunday night with some vinegar and cucumber mix that the preacher claimed was used in the Old Testament. Wow. Looking back, I marvel that I never questioned or looked into that. Growing up in the Methodist Church when I was very young, they took communion with the proper elements but only did so once a quarter. All right, Chris, uh, we're doing it every week. Approve that from the Scriptures. Well, I think that's easy enough to do. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, Luke writes that upon the first day of the week when we had gathered together to break bread, Paul began preaching to them. I, I see that there is absolutely no spiritual benefit to knowing that they assembled on the first day of the week to eat a common meal. 
There's no spiritual benefit to that whatsoever. The the mention of the first day of the week without there being a specific first day of the week being mentioned implies every first day of the week this was a practice. If you drive by this church building, the College View Church building, uh, what is this, Hampshire Pike out here? It is. If you drive by here, you will see a sign that says Bible study... Sunday morning at 9.30. 9.30, and then worship 10.30. It doesn't say every on the sign, but everyone that passes by that sees that distinctive day, and they understand by implication that this is something that is done every Sunday. And Acts 20 and verse 7 forces us. Arthur mentioned a forced conclusion a minute ago. It forces us to conclude that this was a practice of the Christians on the first day of the week every time the first day of the week came around. All right. It was in a week. Right. They were told, remember, remember the Sabbath. Sabbath. Exodus 20, verse Sabbath, 8. Yeah. Yeah. So how can you say, well, this was not important, that when every Sabbath day they were to worship? So we do it every Lord's Day. We believe that that's an inescapable conclusion uh, based on Acts 20, verse 7. We use the, the fruit of the vine uh, and the unleavened bread, which which was specified by Jesus himself when he instituted With the Lord's With us all supper. taking them, that's one and thing. We all different. take another. You know, in the Catholic Church, for instance, uh, the 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 members of the congregation receive a bit of bread, but only the priest drinks the the wine or the fruit of the vine. I don't. Where in the world did they come up with that? And you know, you know. I've 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 seen a different practice in Catholic churches. Years ago, I attended one as a visitor uh, when I was not a Christian, and I saw the the. The drink, as it were, being served to the congregation that assembled. But at any rate, there's a transubstantiation issue that yeah. we that we differ with those folks on. And uh, the grape juice is unfermented. That's a difference as well. That's All right. right. Mike? I say this rather tongue-in-cheek and quite ironic, but one way that uh, denominations are the same as us uh, on the first day of the week is that uh, is that they tend to take up a collection on the first day of the week. Well, that leads us to um, our last point. Yeah, each, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, they, understand, they understand from the Scriptures that they should take up a collection every Sunday, but the same reasoning would lead them to take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. One of the things that, if I may say this before we move to that point, I know we're running out of time, but when I was growing up in the Baptist church, one of the arguments that was made often against the Lord's Supper was that if you take it every Sunday, it becomes a traditional thing. It becomes it, it, habitual. Common. Yeah, it's, it's just, loses it loses its, its significance. But somehow or another... The, the contribution never lost its or appeal. Or prayer. Or prayer or singing never lost its appeal, but just the Lord's Supper. I find that rather curious, but the, the New Testament Christians who understood what the Lord's Supper was for and what it was about took it every first day of the week, and if it's insignificant, then it's a spiritual heart problem of the individual. All right. Well, let's all right, I've been corrected point. in the chat room. Mike says in the Catholic Church they all do take the wine. I, oh, I, I, I didn't know that that was the case. I thought I had observed different. Maybe oh, you may have that. had the Greek Orthodox. Who knows? Yeah. All right. So uh, we've kind of segued to this last thing I want to talk about, and that is giving. Uh, in other words, you say that the Church of Christ is different in the public worship, even in regards to the contribution or the giving. How so? Well, it takes up the collection on the first day of the week and only on the first okay. day of the week. First Corinthians 16, and, 1 and 2. And there's a distinction made between the, the free will offering of First Corinthians 16 and the Old Testament tithe, which was a tenth of all that one had, and there is no specified amount that one is bound to give in the New Testament, but he is to give cheerfully and as he's purposed in his heart, and this is to be done on the first day of the week. No special circumstances that can come along 
during the week can change that so that we can somehow or another uh, accommodate a Wednesday night collection, Friday night collection. It must be the first day of the week because that's the day that 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 authorizes. Well, now, you're being pretty picky there. Mm. Uh, uh, well, you're being pretty picky about well, me being picky. <laughs> we're, we're here on Wednesday night. Yeah. And it's a chance to get a little extra money. Why not? Because the Lord didn't authorize it. Right. Didn't authorize. That's the whole key to what we're talking about here. We're trying to, you know, human wisdom might say, get some money every time you get a chance, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but we're not trying to pursue our own think-sos about our worship. We're trying to do it the way the New Testament authorizes. And we can only find authority for the for the saints to lay by and store on the first day of the week, First Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. And therefore, that's what we do. Now, I think a lot of people would think that's very odd, uh, but we're doing it for a reason. We're not doing it to just be different for different sake. We're doing it because we believe that's what the Bible authorizes. Uh, Arthur. And when you start thinking about that, any one time you deviate from authority, what's the result? Well, you've got a floodgate, and it's going to keep on going. That's right. Right. Chris in Atlanta says, we're taught to cheerfully give of our means as we've prospered. We're not told a particular amount. Many denominations teach we must tithe 10%. They fail to realize that this is not taught under the new law. And if they wanted to give as well as was done under the old law, they would be giving much, much more than 10%. Mm. You know, I think that's kind of, I, I remember years ago, an old preacher was asked, preacher, do we have to give 10%? Do we have to give a tithe? <laughs> And the preacher said, no, 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 that's not in the New Testament. We can give a whole lot more than that. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the importance of this uh, discussion, I think, uh, is uh, summarized by this uh, this argument here. In Romans 14, verse 23, Paul tells us that whatsoever is not of faith is sin, is sin. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. That, therefore mandates that everything we do has to be found in the word of god chris and that's what we found in colossians 3 verse 17 that we've got to do everything by the authority of christ if we don't we can't do it by faith and therefore it is sin and a lot of people are doing things they can't read in the bible in their worship to god and i would conclude it's sin because it's not a faith that's absolutely right whatever is not a faith is sin and, and there's just no way to drive that point home any further i think arthur had something else. and to emphasize again the fact that you know, it's not just to be different. You know, the the things that we practice is not just to be different. It's because the Bible teaches us to be different. Exactly. Thank you. We're out of time. We are out of time, and uh, it's been that, a good discussion. That was a, uh, a, I mean, a rocket ship of 60 minutes. It just yeah. went right by. Well, thank you. Chris, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank thanks you. for your lesson tonight. Thanks for joining us on the virtual Bible study. To any and all who are in the Middle Tennessee area, if you're within a driving distance of Columbia, Tennessee, join us tomorrow night, final night of our Gospel meeting, Eric Reynolds from Fayetteville, Tennessee, will be here to preach about what makes the Church of Christ different, the plan of salvation she teaches. All right. We look forward to that, and we look forward to you joining us. And if you're unable to join us, look for that in the podcast. And if you're listening to this program in the recorded version, you have any questions or comments about the things we said, we welcome your comments anytime at questions at collegeview.com. Chris, thank you for your time. Today. No, thank you, Jacob. Thank you, Greg. And thanks to the elders of the College View Church for the opportunity tonight. All right. We appreciate that and appreciate Jeff for driving the controls tonight. Thank you for being a part of the program. We hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word. I encourage you to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it.
Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.